This podcast is brought to you by lineupmedia.fm. Because if you can tell me what your habits are, I can tell you what sort of a person you are. I can tell you what your future looks like. But like I always say, life is 10% what happens to you. It's 90% what you do about it. The people who are most effective in the workplace believe that their future is going to be bigger than their past. When people don't believe that their future is going to be bigger than their past, they begin to disengage. You're listening to The Circuit of Success, a podcast dedicated to helping you achieve success in every facet of life, only on the lineupmedia.fm podcast network. Now, your host, Brett Gilliland. Well, this is going to be fun. We're going to switch it up. We're going to have a little Q&A. We're going to have a little uh, live podcast, if you will. And so uh, just first and foremost is what you do for the St. Louis community is phenomenal. And uh, I know you give back to so many in our community, but especially the kids of where you grew up. And, and some of them are here with us today. I'm sure they're excited to hear Jackie speak again. And, uh, but why don't you just, if you could, tell our listeners that may not know Jackie's story or who Jackie Joyner-Kersey is and uh, what's made you the woman you are today. Thank you, and I appreciate that very warm welcome, and I want to give a shout out to the JJK Foundation, young people back there, glad to see you here. <laughs> and also, I would like to thank Tracy for that great introduction, and uh, some of our board members, um, Chuck is here as well, and thank you, and uh, Joe Mark, and... Mark Fryer, who is our Chief Operating Officer at the Jackie Jordan Kersey Center. And also, I would just like to welcome a good friend of mine who still today holds the world record in the 100-yard dash, Ivory Crockett. <laughs> world record, 100-yard dash. Yes. There are no more yards. There's only meters now. And I think that's what they're trying to do with the heptathlon, you know, try to make it a decathlon, but anyway, that's another story. Let's get a anyway, chair up here. <laughs> I, would, uh, I would start off saying that I, I grew up in East St. Louis, Illinois, and all in a, in a family of one brother, two sisters, and my mom and my dad, and uh, we lived in my great-grandmother mother home, and we had a lot of love in the house. We didn't focus on the things that we did not have, uh, had a lot of uh, goal-setting, you know, a lot of discipline, a lot of uh, just once you put your mind to something, stick to it, uh, never give up. Even if it appeared or seemed to be difficult, try to find a way uh, to get the job done. So when I was younger and I was exposed to, you know, athletics through a community center, and I didn't know I was blessed with an athletic gift that eventually would allow me to pick my school of choice and be able to travel the world and meet people from all walks of life. I just loved what I was doing. I wasn't one of the best girls. I set my goals on trying to improve a tenth of a second if I was running or a half of an inch if I was jumping, going from last place to eighth place or just seeing myself improve and not understanding that the places that I was ranking in a competition, like four through ninth or four through eighth, was always on the grass. And one, two, three was always on the podium. 
And I was like, well, I got to figure out how I can get on the podium. So I had to teach myself how to become a winner, but not winning at all at one time, but getting in the mix because once you make it in the top three, not knowing at that time, but later on, you usually make your Olympic teams or make national teams. And so that was a part of the process of just trying to, you know, be the best that I could be, but it might not, it might not entail winning, but it was knowing that when I went out, I gave my all. And so I think here's one thing Jackie won't say, because she's very humble. Jackie, in 2001, was voted the best basketball player of the last 25 years, and she had a full ride. Most people would say what? Where do, where do you think she got a full ride to go do at UCLA? Track, right? She's a track star. She got a full ride to go play basketball at UCLA. So one of the greatest basketball players ever. And, and so one thing I asked you one time, I, I said, when did you know you were different? And I think your response was phenomenal. You said, I never thought I was different, but I knew the way I did things were different. What did you mean by that? Yes, I, I grew up with a lot of talented young people, and we were extremely blessed to have uh, coaches and people who would give up their time to really try to help us become better than what we were at that particular time. So for me, one of my greatest assets that I would say that separated me from my friend is that a lot of us hear, but I listen. And it was things that they were saying, they being the coaches, I was listening to them intently you know, if they would say that a stranger, you know, they see us being these great female student athletes one day and people are going to come and they're going to try to give you things. And, and at the time you're like 14 and 15, you're sitting there like, what are they talking about? But then all of a sudden we are having a lot of success and then people want to start giving us things and had to remember that, no, we can't take those things. So that's what I meant by that. And that's one thing I, I share with young people wherever I go is to listen, you know, because it's not the loud voice that connects. It's the, the person with the soft voice that makes the difference. And with me being an asthmatic, and at times I would be stubborn and didn't want to listen, and I would have to whisper uh, out so my husband could hear me, from the top of the step because if I couldn't breathe because I didn't take my medicine like I should and all of a sudden I'm having a, a full-blown asthma attack but I don't have the strength to get down the stairs to tell him I, we got to get to the hospital so I would just whisper Bobby Bobby and he would hear me and get me the necessary help that I needed and so I guess it was just a, a God-given talent but also you had to work your tail off to get there but you chose basketball and track and field and you're asthmatic <laughs> yeah, but I, you so, know, I didn't believe I was an ass man. Right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so it's belief, right? Right. You know, I lived in denial, and, and it was the wrong thing I could have ever done because doing the things that I was doing, running, jumping, throwing, playing basketball, volleyball, there's no way I can have asthma. So when I would go to the doctor and go in there and, you know, tears running down my face and... You know, they put me on the IV, I'm good to go again, then all of a sudden I go back to my same bad habits. I won't take my medication. So you talk about putting things into action. 
I had to have a game plan. I had to really look at asthma as one of my opponents. And it was getting the best of me. And I knew days when I would go out, I couldn't run a mile or I couldn't run a lap. Instead of me associating it with an asthmatic condition, I would associate it with, oh, I'm out of shape. And then I'd be mad at my coaches because I'm like, y'all don't know what you're doing. You know, why is it that I can't run? And reality set in when I had that first attack that my life could be taken away from me in an instant because I have the power to change what's happening, but I don't want to change my behavior and my dreams and my goals of wanting to run can be taken away because of uh, the disposition I put myself in instead of taking, taking care of myself. I think that's a rider downer too, is you looked at your objection as one of your opponents. I think so many times we don't do that, right? We just kind of say, oh, that's just part of my deal, and Shannon talked about that, but putting that as an opponent, that's a big deal because you can work the system around it. So what do you recommend for people? So let's, let's picture the boardroom now. These people are in meetings uh, every day. How do we quiet the noise and perform at our best? You know, I, 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 for me, I think first it starts with uh, the people that are sitting in the room. Uh, it's a team effort. You know, you were in there as uh, teammates of one another and it's uh, respecting the strengths of each person as a part of the team. And whatever the weakness are, then you work on trying to find a balance and making sure that the weakness doesn't overtake the strength of the attitudes and the behavior of the team that's in the room. So I, I would say, you know, you agree to disagree, but when it's all said and done, is that we're all working towards that same bottom line. You know, we might not all get along, but these are things that we have to do to get to the bottom line. So how do you define success? Think back in your days going for the gold medal and think about today, how do you define it? You know, uh, Defining success, to me, I believe, have always believed in that you have to put in the work, you know, and the end results are going to be there. But every day, no one could outwork me. And the end results would be from the preparation of the work that I did to get to, I, would, I won't ever say it's a level of success, because once you say, you have success or you are successful, then all of a sudden you see a decline. So to me, as long as I was competing or in a situation that the work is never done. So the success, the celebration might last for a moment, but then you go back to the drawing board because now you got to start over because you have set a standard, a standard that now either you're trying to beat or someone else. I've always read that, that the, the most susceptible yard of failure is right after success, right? So you see, I think it was Selk or somebody talked about, or maybe Newman back there talked about, you reach that climax, you, you win the Super Bowl, you win the World Series, and then some do fade off, right? You never hear of them again. So what did you do, you know, and we'll get to the gold medals and all that stuff in a minute, but what did you do to be successful to say, okay, great, I do have to turn the page and rethink. So what did you do? Was that a, was that a day off, a week off, a month off? What did that look like for you? Well, first of all, it starts with our team. I have to always be willing to be coachable, always respect the authoritarian figure that was my coach, who happened to be my husband. But we always had to be on the same page with the understanding that if I didn't understand something he was asking me to do, uh, he always challenged 
all of his athletes to know the why, because those who know why will always be those who know how. So I had to always know that maybe Bobby might not make it to the event, but am I prepared enough to execute you know, what I've been working on? So for me, it was always understanding that, understanding that why, and why I'm in this position, and what I need to do, or if I'm having an uh, event not going as well, and I'm sitting over there getting upset or frowning or trying to figure it out. So what was that why for you? My why uh, was <laughs> what it's going to take for me uh, to be the best that I could ever be. And what I mean by that is that I look at, it's good to know my competition, but not know it to the point where I can wheel them to victory, that I had to understand what I needed to do because my event to have Taflon is a numbers game. And I could be good in the hurdles, but running 12, 60 or 12, 70 in the hurdles versus the second place person that might run 1370. So that might only be a 10 point difference. High jump is the key event, one of the least favorite events for me. And, but it's the longest of the seven. So if I'm not on top of my game or I haven't done or listened to the coach and decided that we I didn't really want to work on the high jump, and, and this actually happened, you know, I, I did that and paid a heavy price. But anyway, in the end, if I'm not jumping five, if I'm not jumping consistently six feet, six two, six four inches, and I have an off day, and I come and high jump five feet eight inches or five feet ten inches, and my competitor jumps six two, six four, they have gone up 300 points on me. So you're jumping higher than me. Most of the time. <laughs> Back you think then. you can still beat me right now in those heels? If I had to. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's good. I don't even know what my next question was now, Jackie. But um, where, do you, where did you find your motivation? I, I found my motivation from seeing how difficult my mom worked every day uh, to try to make a difference in the lives of her children. With her not having uh, a high school education and never did she ever talk about giving up. You know, always found a way. You know, if she had to do in and out jobs, she did whatever she had to do to make sure that we had somewhat of a better life. And so that motivation of never giving up, never focusing on what we didn't have, but focus on the things that I could control, gave me the motivation, you know, just be the best that I could be. And, and that's giving you all. Right. Yeah, and I think, you know, when you look at what you have accomplished, I think so many times we want to focus on the success, right? You probably get asked all the time about the gold medals and all the great stuff you've done in your life. But share with our listeners, our listeners, our uh, our audience, if you can. Hopefully, you'll listen to this one day. Um, 
share with our audience about the times that, that didn't go well and then you had to learn. Because, right, we all are going to go on in our daily lives and we all have things we have to deal with that may not be ideal, right? Um, but you have done that same thing. So how did you overcome those and how did you battle through those to ultimately become successful? Athletically, I, I, I would say uh, my first Olympic Games, 1984, I'm in our Olympic trials and I set the national record and, you know, then everyone is picking me to win the gold medal and, and I'm hoping I'm going to win the gold medal too, you know, but we're training and six weeks out, I pull my um, left hamstring and I'd never been injured before and I didn't know how to respond to the fact that my body wouldn't react the way that I wanted it to. So I wasn't accustomed to my hamstrings not firing or, and in this case, it's just steady grabbing. And so my physical therapist and my coaches and everyone, they telling me everything is going to be okay. But psychologically, I look down at my leg is black and blue and I'm like, there's no way it's going to be okay. And, and the first day of the competition in the Olympic Games in Los Angeles, I, my leg is heavily bandaged, so that means something must be wrong. I go to the first event, and I attack the first three hurdles, and I'm, at, I'm anticipating a pain that's not there, but in my mind it is. And I go through the 10 hurdles, and I run a time that was equivalent to what I did in Olympic trials, but my leg is heavily bandaged, so that means something is wrong. I take that same attitude into the next event, the high jump, and I jump off my left leg, which is heavily bandaged, but I'm still, you know, I clear six feet, but something must be wrong. Then I go to the shot put, you know, it's an iron steel ball, weighs about, it's four kilos, or roughly right around nine pounds. And it's the least favorite, it's the hardest one to try to get a lot of points out of. So I just try to maximize, get my points. Then the 200 meters, top speed. I'm still in you know, good contention, but I'm not thinking that I am. And so we ice down, get ready for the next day. Uh, my favorite event amongst the seven is the long jump. I come down that runway and I you know, I'm amidexis in my leg, so I long jump off my right leg. So I'm like, I'm ready to go. And this is the, the event that I love, you know, and, but it didn't love me back, you know. <laughs> I had red flag means no mark, same attitude. I go down, try to get another mark in. And at this time, I am a 22-footer long jumper. And then on my final approach, I end up jumping so far behind the back, the board that I, the distance was about 20 feet, eight inches, and I'm just devastated. And my coach came out of the stands and reminded me that the heptathlon is the makeup of seven events, not one. You need to wipe the tears and get ready because you have two more events to go. And they're the two least favorite for me. So I have to do the javelin, throwing it well, did the um, 800, I lined up for the 800 meters. And at the same time, they're announcing that my brother, Al Jonah, had just won the gold medal in the triple jump. 
and he's rooting for me and cheering me on. And oh, I was tired because I hadn't replenished my fluids. I hadn't eaten in between the events. If I had a wig, I wish me and my brothers could exchange places and you know, <laughs> I put it on him, but that wasn't going to happen. I come in, cross the finish line, and prior to going to the making the Olympic team, I had a tendency of uh, studying the event, studying my competitors, seeing what they're doing. And the young lady from Australia, her name was Glennis Nunn, and I knew when I would see her in multi-events that that meant that maybe she's a heptathlete. And I would see her again personal best each weekend out, and I would tell my coach, well, I see this girl, and he would remind me that you have to focus on yourself. And so when I crossed the finish line, the person who defeated me was Glennis Nunn. She ended up winning the gold medal by, it was three point difference between her and myself. And, and, and for me, it was really uh, a learning moment, a life lesson moment for me because I dreamed about trying to make the Olympic team you know, I, I wanted to be there. My coaches and everyone, they believed in me, but I didn't believe in myself. And I didn't deserve to win the gold medal. You know, I hugged my brother and tears of joy was coming down and he was like, oh, you ought to be happy. I was like, no, I'm not sad. I said, if God blessed me to make another Olympic team, that I want to be the toughest athlete out there mentally, because physically I have the ability to do it. And when I go in front of the press, and do the interviews, I'm not gonna allow them to use my leg as an excuse because I just wasn't strong. I didn't go to the start line thinking like a champion. From the very onset of the event, I went there because my leg was heavily bandaged looking for a reason not to finish. And so I had to change that mindset if I wanted to continue to do this event that I love doing to the best of my ability. And that was just the beginning of me eventually going on and becoming an Olympic champion. <laughs> <laughs> so you came back, you, uh, you came back and you did win the gold medal and uh, that's a big deal, so congratulations. But could you share with us, how did you then overcome that, right? Because I think it is, you do have the physical ability to go do it, but the mental mind part of that is, in my opinion, probably 90% of it, right? And so how did you get mentally tougher? Yes, uh, usually when, when it's all said and done, competing athletically or just in life, once you put in the work, uh, the work that you're preparing yourself or the clients, clients that you're working with, for me, it's no different than me putting in the work and understanding that the preparation that I had to face my fears and understand that we talk about, well, you talked about attitude. And I think the biggest challenge sometimes is that how can we believe in ourselves first? Everyone else can see the potential in me. Everyone else can see you have the ability to do great things. But if you sit there and convince yourself that you cannot do this, you will not. So for me, I had to take ownership of my weakness 
and my weakness was my mental outlook on what I wanted to do. My coaches, my parents, my friends, they couldn't want it more than I. So I had to say, this is my dream. This is what I want. I show up every day and they are there to help me. But I had to recognize that person in the mirror says one thing and that mirror doesn't talk back, but I understood that these are the things that I need to do. So I had to work on my mental toughness. Then we would do different things in training. It can just be the physical part of it when you're running so many mileage and then your legs are getting heavy. Do you focus on how heavy your legs are? No, you start focusing on the mechanics. You start focusing on the things that's gonna get you through. You run into a rough spot that might be happening with the company. Okay, we know the problem exists, but what is the solution? What are the things that you're gonna put in place to come up with the solution to the problem? Because you don't wanna perpetuate it because it is an issue. So it's the same way when training is that we know what the issue is. It starts with me. I got, all the, I got the best coach in the world working with me, but I doubted myself. You know, we doubt ourselves, we start to lose, right? So anybody that's ever listened to our show every week knows my question is coming up. But before Jackie answers it, I want, I want everybody to think about this. And so we all put fears in our mind every single day, right? Fear that I'm going to fail or fear that today won't be a success, whatever it is. But in those fears, which fear stands for what? False evidences appearing real, right? False evidence appearing real. How many of the fears that we all have put in our minds... How many of them have come true to the magnitude you put them in your mind to be? Think about that. Right? How many of the fears you put in your mind have actually come true to the magnitude you put them in your mind to be? And I would ask you that same question. Yeah, you have to change that because fear drives me. Fear, I don't want to go back to where I once was. I don't want, when people ask, people ask me today, oh, you know, are you going to go for the Olympics? I'm like, you don't know how old I am? <laughs> <You know? laughs> but, or do I miss it? It's not that I don't miss it, but the reality of it is I know how hard you have to train to get there and to be there. And so everything that was holding me back, it was a fear. When I was learning how to execute, how to high jump properly, it went back to when I was in junior high school. The gym teacher left us alone and they had the high jump bar up and the mat. And so she said to us not to move. You know what that means, we moved. So we went and I tried to jump over the high jump bar and I missed the mat completely and I landed on a wooden floor. So I said to myself, if I'm ever going to do this event again, I'm going to make sure I get it over the bar. I would literally high jump as like I'm sitting before you because now I could see the mat. But I developed a fear of learning to lay out because I would jump six feet to clear five eight in this position. So all of a sudden when I learned technique, I could jump six two and I could jump six four a lot easier than sitting over the bar. So for me, fear 
it's an inspiration as well as a motivation to be the best that I could be, not let my fears overcome me to the point where it changed my mindset and my thinking that I actually bring it into existence, that it becomes a livable situation. So I challenge myself every day that fear is there for a reason, but I look at it from a positive point of view. And I think you would answer this, and I think you did answer this, that none of your fears have actually come true to the magnitude we put them in our minds to be, right? Exactly. It's just like when you put on high heels the first time, the first thing you come to mind, I'm going to fall. No, I'm not going to fall. It's just like some of my friends saw me say, you know, oh, well, I'm not going to tell you go up there and break a leg. No, because I am clumsy and I might break that leg, <laughs> even though we know it means good luck. <laughs> but we don't want it, you know, to become reality. But if you you talk about, as, as I grew up, I, I visualize a lot. And one of the most difficult things, it was for me learning how to do three steps in the hurdles. You know, it was the hardest thing. We, I'd be taking 20 steps. Then all of a sudden you visualize, but in your mind, it's like you're really going in slow mode. But no, it isn't. The three steps become automatic because I visualize it. And then now I go and I duplicate it on what I'm supposed to do on the track. Or I see myself in the starting blocks waiting to hear, you know, the gun goes off, the exploding out, executing the first three hurdles. I know four, five, and six is the competition. I reconstruct at hurdle seven, come through eight, nine, ten. I know I got five strides to the finish line. I visualize all that because I don't have a whole lot of time to be thinking about it in a race I'm trying to run 12 seconds. Uh, you said that to me one time before. I'm always amazed by that, that you can see it in her mind right there, right? How well she knows that, and she is just going to finish, and she's going to come across, and she's going to win. So, so what would you tell if you were these, these uh, young students out here today? And, I mean, how awesome is it they're here? Um, what would you tell the Jackie Joyner Kersey of 17, 18, 20, 25 years old? What would you tell that, that Jackie Joyner Kersey? <laughs> I would uh, continue to tell her to, uh, I talked about it being a great listener, uh, be uh, coachable, uh, no matter how great people say you are, always uh, keep yourself in an hum a humbling uh, position, because if you grew up on a humble, solid foundation, then that shouldn't change. So, and always continue to work hard and not be afraid uh, to be different, be different in a way that uh, speak out against things that you know that's not right and speak up for those who can't speak up for themselves. So I could ask like, you know, an hour's worth more of questions, but how about in the crowd? Anybody want to ask Jackie a question? Anybody got anything they want to know that maybe I'm not asking? Right back here. When did that dream start? If you could not hear uh, when across did, the room. Yeah, the, they say, when did the dream start? I started running at the age of nine, and I saw the 76 Olympic Games on television. I was 14. And that's when I said I wanted to go to the Olympics. 
and I went to my coaches and they said I had the potential, but I had to be willing to work hard and and I thought I was working hard, but they say you got to work a little harder, you know. <laughs> and I didn't know about, you have to go through the Olympic trials, you have to have a qualifying mark. And so I went to my first Olympic trials when I was a senior in, in high school and I finished eighth in the long jump. And, but I knew then that was something I really wanted to do. I think what's cool is you said one time, Babe Diedrichson, right? Isn't that her name? She, um, she inspired you, right? You saw her on a TV show and you watched that and it inspired you to be an athlete. And then fast forward after her career, uh, the top two female athletes uh, ever uh, voted on by Sports Illustrated. Number one was Jackie Joyner Kersey. Number two was Babe Diedrichson. So how cool is that, right? Somebody inspires you to go make a difference and then you beat her. <laughs> I didn't beat her, right. you know, it's just the progress the vote, of the women uh, sports, you know, where people have an appreciation for, there's just so many great women that came before me that, you know, that we, you know, we don't recognize or, so for me, it's always great to pay homage to those women that provided an opportunity for me. Question back here. Can you tell us about the hard work she's doing in East St. Louis and how we all can help support that? Yes. Thank you. She loves that. You can tell by her face, right? Did you, did you plant her out there in the audience? No. <laughs> you know, all this athletic stuff, I mean, it's great, you know. Uh, but I started my athletics through a community center. And at that community center, I was exposed to uh, a library and work with a librarian, work with seniors, was part on the Meals on, Meals on Wheels program. And going through that center helped shape my life from the standpoint of learning to volunteer, learning to want to give back. And through my journey of going to school and unfortunately my freshman year, I lose my mom, mom unexpectedly. And I go to this community center that I had found so much love to try to escape what I was going through and come to find out that center was closed. And I started thinking, where do the young people go? And I didn't know it would take resources and to open up a center. So I tried, thought I could open that center, but that was early 1981. I started my community work back in 1988. And then from my scholarships, I mean scholarships, from my sponsorships, that I would just put money into people. I didn't feel I needed a building to help people. And then fast forward, 96, we broke ground on the Jackie Joyner Kersey Center in East St. Louis. We opened in 2000. And right around 2008, we hit a rough spot. You know, we had to close for six months. And I was very fortunate to meet a very lovely Christian couple who believed in the mission, who believed in the dream, who we regrouped, we redid our board, brought on a lot of new people. We didn't start off, you know, trying to hire a lot of people right away. We collaborated with people doing programs. And now today we have 14 programs. You know, one of our signature program is called Winning in Life. It's uh, based off of my autobiography, there are 14 different principles that's threaded throughout uh, our programs in, in the center. And it's based off 
its emotional and spiritual and physical capabilities of giving our young people life skills and life tools to become great leaders in life. And we're located in East St. Louis, and all of you are welcome to come over and visit, you know, and we will welcome that. We have a, a golf event, you know, as Tracy mentioned, on uh, May uh, 21st. That's one of our fundraiser. We have a gala in, in October. But then we also have our website, jjkfoundation.org. You can go on there and learn more information. But I would invite you to come and visit us first. And then we can sit down and talk about ways that you can help us carry on trying to make a difference, not only in the lives of the young people in East St. Louis, but really in this region. Because we should not allow a river to divide us. The Mississippi River should bring us together. Any other final questions? We got time for maybe one more question right there. Two more questions. We got time. Great question. My uh, mental state uh, is one thing, you know, I talk about the preparation. You put in the work. You know, you go into a competition just really focusing on for me, I just had to execute, you know, not thinking a whole lot, uh, doing everything that I was prepared to do and hoping that uh, the re end results would come out the way I w wanted them to come out. Again, I talked about numbers and times and our philosophy was always to put ourselves in a position to win first and then everything else would take care of itself. It was never to go after a record or anything is that put myself in a position to win, execute the numbers that I had drawn up, what I needed to do. If I fell short somewhere, then I would make it up in another event and not worry about the things I couldn't control. All of a sudden, if it started raining, then oh, I'm not going to change my demeanor. It's like I'm still, I'm ready to go. And so go through the two-day event, then all of a sudden cross the finish line, I realized that I have become, you know, an Olympic champion. And then they take you, you know, you go through a whole lot of ceremonial stuff before, you know, you get to get to the podium. But then uh, you get on the podium and you stand in there, you know, proudly and like, I'm not going to let tears come down. But those emotions you cannot control, you can't hold back. And for me, the, the emotions of all the people who believed in me, I, I stood there wearing that gold medal because of them, because they believed in me. And it's, it's one of the greatest feelings in the world to be able to dream about something, see it become a reality, and trying to make an Olympic team. You know, you, you train... <laughs> day in and day out and on Olympic trials day before you can make the team you can't get sick because if you're sick on, on the day that you have to perform then the chances are you're going to miss out and you're not guaranteed that you will be around the next second or the next minute or the next hour or the next year let alone four years to try to make another Olympic team yeah, because yeah. I got a 
you know, a selection of all colors. You know, I could say, <laughs> I could say <laughs> that uh, the silver medal, well, you can tell the silver, you know, <laughs> it was the beginning for me, you know, and the gold medal, my first Olympic gold medal, and most of the time I don't, you know, I have one of them here. Young people, now these medals are 30 years old, so <laughs> some of you aren't even born, but anyway. This is my first Olympic gold medal, and it means a lot because I was able to train wait four years and try to come back and, and have an opportunity to not only just win the gold medal, but when you could win a gold medal and break a world record in the same Olympic Games, it has some significance. But for me, this is the perseverance or the hard work and the commitment, you know, that we did even though they gave out one medal to me, but my coaches and my team, you know, helped me to win this gold medal. And then the bronze medal, uh, my last Olympics in 96, uh, has a lot of significance from the standpoint that I was injured with my right hamstring. And it's unfortunate because the Olympics is when everybody watched those were the only times I was injured throughout my whole career, was either getting ready for the Olympic Games or, and then most people think you were injured all the time, but I wasn't. <laughs> it was just that everybody was watching the time I was injured. But 96, uh, not being able to finish the heptathlon and my, my husband who pulled me uh, from the event because he just felt that you know, my attitude that I'm willing to pull every muscle in my body to try to get the job done, but wanted to give me a shot at trying to see if I could compete in the, in the open long jump. So having those two extra days of rest after pulling out of the heptathlon gave me a, a chance to compete in the open long jump. And in competing in the open long jump, it, it was challenging, it was tough, because when you think you're jumping 23 feet and they put up 21, it's like, Lord, what am I doing? You know, I gotta go try a little harder and find myself in, I was in sixth position on my last jump. And I say to, I say to myself, like I always uh, say to young people that as long as you believe you can turn a dollar into a believer, never give up on yourself. And I took myself through that. I looked down that runway. I saw myself visualizing, you know, coming down the runway. My mark is 127 feet, eight inches from takeoff to the board. I'm 29 feet, two inches. Uh, I have four steps in between that to execute. I saw myself looking at the top of the tree branches. And I said, you're gonna climb. You're gonna hold yourself in there for a second. And if the leg goes, they'll send a gurney out there to pick you up. But I'm going to give it everything I have to give. And I came down, hit that board, landed in the sand pit, 
looked back at the officials, saw the white flag. All I had to do was wait to see what the distance was going to be. And it came up seven meters, 23 feet. You know, and for me, I was going for the win. Had I been going for the bronze, I would have stayed in sixth place. And I was able to leave Atlanta with a bronze medal in the long jump. Well, on, uh, on behalf of Tim and all the other folks from Visionary, we uh, really thank you for being here today. What a phenomenal day. And uh, thank you for being here. There Thank are drinks you. out there. If you want to stick around, we'd love for you to stick around and, uh, and talk and chat. I'm sure Ben will be here. But if we could have Tim and Ben, Jackie staff here, if we can have all the kids come up that are still here and able to still be here, we'd like to get a picture with everybody. So come on up, kids. But thank you so much for being here. It's a full day. Thank you very much. Tune in next week for another episode of The Circuit of Success with Brett Gilliland on the lineupmedia.fm podcast network. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and through our website, circuitofsuccess.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and email any questions to info at circuitofsuccess.com. This podcast was a presentation of lineupmedia.fm.